The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, everyone. So where I live on the East Coast of the United States, we are heading into a season of colder weather and less daylight, which means a lot more time bundled up, probably a lot more food, a lot of time with family and reflecting. So in the next few weeks on the show, we're going to be exploring how to weather the season. But to kick off, here's a conversation I had with the founder of The Happiness Project and best-selling author Gretchen Rubin earlier this year. Enjoy. What did you do for fun when you were 10 years old? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. This week, I'm talking to one of the first authors that ever got my attention in the space of personal development, Gretchen Rubin. She wrote the book, The Happiness Project, in 2009. Now, this book helped me transform from being totally cynical about walking down the self-help aisle at Barnes & Noble to actually looking at how we can all get happier, how we can develop ourselves, and how we can transform. Since she wrote her book, it's been published in over 30 languages, it sold more than 1.5 million copies, and she spent over two years on the bestseller list. She's also since then written a number of other New York Times bestsellers. I would highly encourage you to check them out. Now, here's what I love about her work. Number one is simplicity. What she does and what she understands, I can replicate, and so can you. Number two is translation. Sometimes I will read a scientific journal or article that has so much powerful information and at the same time be frustrated to know it may not translate beyond the field. Gretchen's work is translatable. And number three, she's a person who leads with curiosity and lets it unfold through her work, which I adore. Now, we didn't get into much of the detail around what we did for fun at 10 years old which, quite frankly, I think I was probably making potions or reading a book on how to parent leopard geckos. But I want you to just take a second here and think about what you loved doing when you were 10 years old. And Gretchen's going to tell you why. Because usually something that a person did for fun when they were 10 years old is something they would enjoy as an adult. And a lot of times adults have kind of drifted away from that. So... Gretchen, there are so many ways we could go here because your work has followed a thread. And I'm curious what the thread is from your perspective. Well, you know, I started the Happiness Project just because I was working on my own happiness. It started out just being a happiness project for me. You know, they say that uh, research is me search, and that's how the Happiness Project started. Um, And once I started researching happiness, I just found that it was this vast, limitless, you know, endlessly fascinating subject. And I've just pursued my own interests. So, you know, I wrote The Happiness Project, and that got me really thinking about happiness at home. It's hard to be happy if you're not happy at home. So I wrote Happier at Home. And then I started thinking, you know, a lot of times people, they know perfectly well what would make them happy, but they have trouble doing those things. And I realized it was a problem of habit formation. So then I wrote a book about habits better than before. And then I started noticing Gosh, it's funny how people get so worked up and so excited, but just by 
cleaning out a closet or organizing their desk. It's like, and I feel that way myself. Like my friend who told me, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. I thought, what? How do you explain that? So I wrote a little book called Outer Order, Inner Calm. And now I'm working on a book about the five senses because I was thinking, I feel like I'm not really engaged with my five senses the way that I want to be and in the present moment. So I thought, okay, well, I'll write a book about that. So the through line is really like my own lack, what I feel like I need to work on or understand um, as I try to understand the larger subject of happiness. Yeah, I just wrote down like you're following your curiosity. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Yep. Which is my my favorite thing from Elizabeth mm. Gilbert. And that's what's opened you up to these multitude of different books. I think you're so right about curiosity, because I also think that with curiosity comes enthusiasm. And I think so much about like, when I feel enthusiastic, it just everything feels easier. It's like you're energized by the yes. thing that you're curious about. Yeah. And you want to share it, too. So I think there's something social and sort of playful and almost goofy about enthusiasm. I think of someone like Julia Child, who just like just can't contain her love of French cooking. I have no interest in French cooking. And yet even I feel the pleasure of her enthusiasm and her mastery. Like it, mm -hmm. it lifts me up, too. It's contagious. And mm -hmm. even if it's not quite contagious, you sort of feel the lift. See, I mean, that's I think one of the things I've really found just in human nature generally is that we're more alike than we think and we're more different than we think. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of times when I think I'm super idiosyncratic and no one responds the way I do, it turns out a lot of people are just like me. But then also if I sort of assume like, well, everybody feels this way, it's probably like, eh, maybe not, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um so it's like making generalizations is very tricky. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, you're reminding me of your personal commandments. It makes me think of B. Yeah. Gretchen. Yes, yes, and so yes. that's sort of the, yes. the start of how we all get to our own personal or authentic type of happiness or contentment. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We have mm. to start with ourselves. And yeah. I think strangely people skip this step because they think, well, what's the best way or what's the right way? Or if it worked for Leah, it'll work for me. Instead of saying like, well, given the kind of person that I am and my nature, my preferences, my values, how do I set myself up to achieve my aims? And that might look very different. We could both get to the same place, but take a very different road. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people almost get discouraged or, or feel um, like there's something wrong with them if something that works very well for someone else doesn't work for them. Of course, it, that's not surprising that... Some people are night people and some people are morning people. It's like, okay. There's sort of this, like, we have this perception of a right way to show up in the world. Yes. Yes. You know, you've been doing this research for, you know, I, what I must be over 10, over 10 years, over yes. 15 years now. What has been most surprising to you and the work that you've done? Well, this is it. This is the that's thing that's it. the most surprising to me, which is that in a world that wants a one-page PDF that you can download from the internet that's going to tell you how to do it. It's like there just isn't a shortcut. You really have to just say, well, what kind of person am I? When have I succeeded in the past? Um, what do I want that might be different from what other people want? What are the values I want to put out into the world? And 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 it really surprised me because I, I have to say that when I started, I kind of thought, well, if I do the research and test things out, I'll come up with sort of a framework for success. And now I just realize the the framework has to be one that is constantly saying, maybe this, maybe that. Your mileage may differ. 
Try it a different way. You can succeed by failing. If you try one thing and it doesn't work, that's great. Now you know that doesn't work. Now it's on to something else. And also what I found is that people are so imaginative and so ingenious and thinking of all different ways to set themselves up for happiness. I mean, it just, it's a source of endless fascination for me. Like it's inexhaustible, people's creativity. So I think understanding that um, even though we all might have kind of core aims, like strong relationships and a healthy body, things like that, we might really set things up very differently for ourselves. And that's fine. That's absolutely to be expected. So my challenge with happiness in the last, even before COVID, was it felt like it was this fleeting thing that, you know, you you know, we all kind of make up that there is this pursuit of happiness that's perpetual, but we expect this spike that you get when you're actually happy and the emotional state of happiness to last for some elongated period of time. And then also to be um, specific to an actual point in time or goal we're trying to meet, right? So like the arrival fallacy. Yeah. Um, What have you learned are some of the myths about happiness? And is there a different way we should be looking at it today? Well, I think you're very right to point out the arrival fallacy. So for, you know, that's the idea that once we arrive someplace, then we'll be happy. Once I get the promotion or I move to a new city or I renovate my kitchen or I get married, we have the idea that arriving will make us happier. And just research shows that we just don't get the happiness bump from that that we expect. And research shows that people are not that good at predicting what will make them happier in the future. You know, one of the things I do not do, and I, I think some researchers pursue this line of thought much more, which is like the constant monitoring, like on a one to 10 scale, are you at a seven? Are you at an eight? Are you at a four? Like, I don't think like that. And if I ever at any one moment ask myself how happy I am, I just have no idea. It's like the, the, the question melts my brain. So I just am always thinking about like, if I do something, do I think over time it's going to make me happier? So I don't think about happiness. I think about being happier because I feel like that's clear. I think when you say to somebody like, are you happy? It's, it's sort of like, well, am I? And how do I stay there? And what does it mean? And maybe I'm happy, but I'm also unhappy. Or maybe I'm also sad. And those two things can often coexist. But if you say like, Well, if you do this, do you think you'd be happier? If you started a book group, do you think you'd be happier? If you could imagine yourself sticking to exercising five times a week, do you think that would make you happier? People, then it's very clear to say like, yes, I think that would make me happier. Well, then that's easier rather than saying like, okay, you went for a 25 minute walk today. Do you feel happier? Because it's like, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. That's confusing to me. So I like to think about like over the long run, as I look forward, do I think that something will make me happier? Um, and then sometimes, sometimes things don't. I wanted to play the ukulele. I was like, everybody says the ukulele is so easy. It's so fun. I had all these visions of me whipping out the ukulele. <laughs> and I just didn't enjoy it at all. I did not find it easy. And it wasn't the kind of thing where I'm, sometimes you break through. You have those feelings of insecurity and frustration and resentment. You know, it's the atmosphere of growth often has these this difficult starting period. And then you get through it. And I, I was like, I can just tell this isn't my thing. I don't think this is my jam. And I'm going to stop so I have more time for things that I think are more likely to make me happier. Your point about just saying, I can tell this isn't my thing, which sounds so simple when it comes to the ukulele, but you expand that out into relationships, careers, uh, you know, where we live, you know, who we spend time with. 
um, it becomes a much more uh, difficult experience to come so to that point. Hard. How do we do this? It can be really difficult because because sometimes you're you're thinking like, is it them or is it me? Like, is there something about this workplace or this kind of work that I'm just not suited for? Or is it just that I need to like learn and expand? And I always think I think you put your finger right on this central tension. And the way I think about it is I want to accept myself and expect more from myself. And those two things are often in tension. And only I can know. Is this someplace where I really just need to accept myself and say, hey, the ukulele isn't my thing? Or is this a time where I need to expect more from myself and say, hey, Gretchen, push through it. If you do this for a couple of months, you're going to have immense pleasure from the ukulele. And I think that there's really no answer to that other than just looking deep within yourself and thinking like you don't want to be stopped by fear. You don't want to give up too soon. But I do think that for most of us, you know, with reflection and with honest reflection, there comes a point where you're like, you know what? I just, there's too many things missing that are important to me. So I think a lot of times it is hard. It is stressful. But I, I think that we do have to, to figure it out for ourselves because there's no, there's no cutout answer. So how do we get happier? Like, where do we start? Okay. Excellent question. So if you were going to say, what's the secret to happiness? You could come up with a couple different answers, depending on how you approach it. One is relationships. You know, all the research shows that when you look at the people that are happy, they are the ones that have strong relationships. We need intimate, enduring bonds. We need to feel like we belong. We need to be able to confide. We need to be able to get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. So when they look at people at work and say, are you happy at work? What people say is I have a friend at work, not just like somebody that I make conversation around the coffee pot, but somebody who has my back, someone who would, you know, like I could tell an important secret to. And do I have a boss who uh, somebody right above me who cares about seeing me progress and friends? Do we, you know, do we have loving relationships? So that's hugely important. Anything that we do that deepens or expands our relationships is likely to make us happy. But you could also say um, a great place to start is with your own body because your physical experience always colors your emotional experience. And if you are chronically undersleeping, so you really need seven hours of sleep and you're really getting by on five, that's going to catch up with you much more than people realize. We kind of habituate to it. We don't realize how off our game we are. But when scientists study these people, they see they're very impaired. Mm. If we don't, you know, exercise, we need exercise to keep our, our bodies in good working order. And then finally, I would just return to this, this issue that we keep talking about, which is know yourself and think about, well, what's true for you? What makes you happier? You know, um, not to think that you need to fit yourself into someone else's cookie cutter idea of what a happy life is, but what does that mean for you? Um, because... I think people often assume that everyone sort of wants more or less the same things. And it, it's just not true. And the, what they want and how they get there would be very different. And so I think we have to begin by thinking about ourselves. When I think about this space of the work that you and I do, I can't help but also think about the cynical people in my life that I know who who go, oh, God, this stuff on like positive psychology, happiness, like yeah. what, a, what a load of crap. Yeah. Um, what would you say to them? <laughs> the thing about happiness is it has a surprisingly bad reputation. Um, mm -hmm. I think that some people think that, well, if you worry about happiness, you're just kind of a self-centered 
self-indulgent person who just wanna wants to like lie on the beach and and, and drink margaritas all day. Um, or people kind of, you know, more profoundly think, you know, in a world full of suffering and injustice, it's not morally appropriate to seek to be happier. Yeah. Like, how dare I? Well, and, and right. And like, how could you be happy in the face of everything else? Um, but what the research shows, and I think the common experience confirms this, I think, when we look at the people in our lives, that happier people are actually more interested in the problems of the people around them and more interested in the problems of the world. Happier people are more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to vote. They're more likely to donate money and time. They're more likely to help out if a family member or a neighbor or a colleague needs a hand. They make better leaders and better uh, team members. They're more resilient. They have better habits. They're less likely to have things like burnout. Um, I think when we're happier, we have the emotional wherewithal to turn outward and to think about the pain of the world and the problems of other people. And when we're less happy, we tend to become isolated and defensive and preoccupied with our own problems because we're not very happy. And so, you know, if you do say like, oh, well, it's selfish to want to be happier. Well, we should be selfish if only for selfless reasons, because this is really how we arm ourselves to go out into the world. And... Um, you know, it's so it's like being happier does it doesn't make people want to drink margaritas by the beach. It makes people think like, you know, it just seems like there should be a better way to distribute malaria nets. And I, I think I need to get get involved in that somehow. You know, it, it makes people want to turn outward. And uh, and I think this is what, you know, people often will quote that cliche of like, put on your own oxygen mask first. And I think it's a cliche because people understand that, that at a certain point, it's by taking care of ourselves that we then equip ourselves to care for others. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but here's what you might want to chew on while we're away. The first place to start creating a happier life is within yourself. You are the only person that has a unique equation for your own happiness. And while it's enticing to attach the feeling of happiness to an arrival point like a promotion or a move, a wedding, a family, or a retirement, that robs you of your power today. So instead, you can ask the question, will this action make me happier over time? And that shifts the narrative from the outcome of you arriving at this point to an ongoing action you can be present to. Studies have also shown that it will actually make you happier to focus there. When we get back, Gretchen helps us get clear on how to use our tendencies to cultivate our happiness. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, 
I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with Gretchen Rubin. So I was curious if, as Gretchen says, that pursuing happiness is actually a way to arm ourselves to take on anything the world throws at us, then why don't we all just do it automatically? Here's Gretchen. Well, this gets into my four tendencies framework. So to back up a little bit, when I was writing my book, Better Than Before, about habit formation, I noticed these very big patterns in how people did or did not successfully form a habit. So I wanted to figure that out. And after like months of just sweat pouring down my face, thinking about it, I realized that a really important question in this personality framework is how do you respond to expectations? And we each face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline and inner expectations like my own desire to get it back into meditation. So depending on whether you meet or resist outer and inner expectations, that makes you an upholder a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. So you can take my quiz, but I will describe them quickly. And most people know exactly what they are just from this brief description. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. So their motto is discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if if they think it makes sense. So they resist things that are arbitrary, inefficient, unjustified. So if something meets their inner standard, they will do it with no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they'll push back. So their motto is, if you convince me why, then I'll comply. Then there are obligers. And this is how I'm answering your question. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So, and I got my insight into this when I talked to a friend about her exercise habit. She said, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she showed up no problem. But when she was going on her own, it was a struggle. So the motto of obligers is you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. And for obligers, they often have trouble making time for themselves or keeping their promises to themselves or putting themselves first. And the answer for that for an obliger is to create outer accountability. That is what obligers need. Even to meet an inner expectation, they must have a system of outer accountability. And by the way, obliger is the biggest tendency for both men and women. You either are an obliger of course. <laughs> or you have many obligers in your life. Big tendency. And then rebel, smallest tendency, Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. So their motto is, you can't make me, and neither can I. Um, But to your point, whenever somebody talks about self-care, 
making time for themselves, making themselves a priority, keeping promises to themselves, that all of my obliger lights start flashing. That is usually the sign of an obliger. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the solution is to create outer accountability. You want to read more? Join a book group. You want to exercise more? Take a class, work out with a trainer, work out with a neighbor who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up, raise money for a charity. There's a lot of ways to create outer accountability once you realize that that is what you need. Do those four tendencies change throughout our lives? Well, I'm a big believer in the genetic roots of personality. And I do think that the four tendencies, this is something that you bring into the world. It's part of your, you're hardwired. You're not one at 20 and one at 40. You're not one at work and one at home. Um, it may come out differently in different places. Um, but I think overwhelmingly, you, you get what you get <laughs> with the tendency. <laughs> it's funny. I came out as the questioner. Mm. And I wonder about the cultural overlays that contribute yes. to the obliger. It's like kindness is so important. And sometimes kindness gets conflated with, you know, meeting other people's expectations at the cost of your own. And so I, I wondered about that, too. I certainly can remember points where I've been much more in the obliger place. But then after my own kind of personal transformation, I'm much more of a questioner, but still get kind of pulled back into the obliger based on sometimes just the the culture or the system that I'm sitting within, whether it be, you know, family, friends or, you know, work. Well, certainly our values contribute to it. And so if you have a very high value mm -hmm. of, of consideration for others or or supporting others, uh, you might go very far out of your way to meet other people's expectations. And that would be true of all the tendencies. You know, it's interesting about the the culture, because I almost feel like people explain the habits that they perceive in themselves through culture. Hmm. It's like how they explain their own pattern of behavior rather than understanding that they're behaving a certain way. So obligers will often say something like, well, I always put other people's needs in front of my own. And I'm like, I don't think that's what's actually happening. I think what's actually happening is that you're meeting outer expectations. And that seems like a very subtle difference, but it's actually incredibly important mm -hmm. because the solution is, okay, well, let's give you some outer accountability for that. And then you're all of a sudden going to be in a very different place. Um, mm -hmm. But I, you're exactly right, though, that culture really often shapes how we perceive or how we understand our own action. And, and just to take the obliger example, you sometimes see this with obligers because some people are like, you know what? I give 110% to my clients or my patients. And uh, you think I got time to exercise? Not somebody like me. I'm there to make every sale. I give everything to my client. I am so hardcore. I got no time for me because I'm so intense and I'm such a badass, right? That's obliger. I'm hearing obliger. And someone else is like, I just don't know. You know, I just, I keep my promises to other people that I just, oh, time and time again, I break my New Year's resolutions. And I, I'm just, I, when it comes to me, I just, I'm, I don't know if I'm lazy or I just, you know, I'm putting everybody's needs in front of my own. Okay. These are the, this is the same behavior, right? Mm -hmm. But one person has found a way to kind of like see it as like a, like a value. It's like a self-righteous. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> And I'm going to claim that. And then someone else is feeling bad about it. But it's the same. It, but to me, it's the same pattern of behavior, which is hmm. you're doing everything at work that you're being asked to do. But it, when it comes to something like exercise, you feel like you never are holding. You can't. You're not keeping that. And it's sort of like it doesn't matter what your explanation for it is, because the same solution would be, OK, now we need to create a system of outer accountability for you, because that's probably what's going to work. Um hmm. 
But absolutely, it's culture. uh, There's so many ways that go into how we understand that pattern. I love that it's this is pointing to it's like different strokes for different folks, right? Like not everybody's um, solution is going to work if we just even look at these four different tendencies. I actually would be more frustrated by being a part of like a book club. Like that would that would create more stress and pressure for me. It's probably what tells me I'm I'm a questioner. I'm not an obliger. I'm like that doesn't make sense. Right. But. I can read on my own and be fine. It sounds like what you're saying is, you know, the first piece in how we cultivate our own happiness is understanding ourselves and then starting to define what matters to us. Yes, and what works, because because exactly as you say, something that works very well for one person could be actually counterproductive for someone else. And there's immense power in all four tendencies. They all have strengths, they all have weaknesses, and it's really a matter of just sort of figuring out the strengths and the weaknesses so you can harness the strengths of it. But if somebody keeps telling you that you're doing it wrong, well, then that's going to get in the way. So it's really like somebody saying to you, okay, it turns out that a book club isn't a good way. That doesn't make you want to read more. All right, okay, but what is the kind of thing that um, that would work for you. That's very different from saying like, well, what's wrong with you? Like everybody knows that to-do lists are like the first thing that everybody tells you to do. It is the first thing everybody tells you to do, but they don't work for everybody. There's no magic one, one size fits all solution. So on that topic, once you've decided or kind of moved into this place of saying, all right, I understand myself, um, You know, something I think a lot of people still have trouble with, and I think it's the reason we all like, you know, personality and values tests is just (laughs) understanding, like, what matters to us. I I loved your personal commandments because it was a it's a clear and I'd love for you to share share what it is and how to do it. But it's a very clear way to start connecting to yourself. It's a way to think about how you want to show up in the world. Right. Yeah, because you would think, oh, well, what could be more obvious than to know myself? Because I just hang out with myself all day long. Like, of course I know myself, but it's like the great, it's the great challenge of our lives, I think, is to try to truly understand ourselves. Yeah, so I did this exercise of writing my personal commandments, and I happen to have 12, but there's no magic to 12. Um, and uh, and what I was trying to do was to come up with sort of the the big principles by which I wanted to live my life. So these weren't things like make my bed every day, which are sort of like the habits that I want to follow or like I go to the Metropolitan Museum every single day. It's so fun. That is not a personal commandment. It was more like, OK, what are the big ideas? So the first one, and you mentioned this before, is be Gretchen, because this is the idea that I have to like always accept myself and expect more from myself. But I always have to like remember to think about, well, what is true for me? Not my fantasy self, not what other people want from me, but what is really true for me. And I would say that's probably my most important personal commandment. And then there are some that are aimed at sort of my own personal limitations or challenges. So one of them is spend out. I am one of these people who has kind of a hoarding nature. Like I'll often save things. Like I'll save things like I pick a one word theme for the year and my word this year is salt. And my sister got me a t-shirt that says salt on it. And it's like, I wanted to save it because I'm like, I like it so much. I don't want to wear it, but I'm like, but not wearing it is like wasting it. I should wear it. I should burn a scented candle. I should use my good China. I should use my good ideas. When I first started writing, I was like, I'm going to run out. And now I'm like, no, do not dole out creativity with a teaspoon. You've got to like dump everything in every single day. You've just got to trust that there's going to be more. So spend out is very meaningful for me. 
and related to that, so I have a spiritual master. My spiritual master is St. Therese of Lisieux, even though I am not Catholic. And St. Therese wrote, when one loves, one does not calculate. But I am a bean counter. I'm a scorekeeper. I did this for you. Now you have to do this for me. And I realized, like, I don't want to be that way in my loving relationships. And so one of my personal commandments is no calculation, meaning I just I'm not going to keep score. Um, and then uh, enjoy the process came from my father. My father always tells my sister and me to enjoy the process. And this is the arrival fallacy that you mentioned earlier, that sometimes you're like, oh, if I could only make partner, if I could only get to vice president, if I could only make this shift, then I will be happy. But sometimes we don't always get what we want. Things don't always turn out the way we hope. But if you enjoy the process, then you might be disappointed, but it's not as bitter because you're like, but I had so much fun. You know, I love that job. I learned a lot. I made lots of great connections and made good friends. If you enjoy the process, then outcomes, they don't overwhelm every other value where I think sometimes if you don't enjoy the process, um, you just all your hopes are pinned on a certain outcome and we just can't control outcomes. I started making some of my own and I and then, you know, it's funny is some of mine have really changed. Ooh, Ooh like what? So the ones that have stayed the same. So I loved your B. Gretchen. So I stole that for B. Leah. Good. And I'm like, yeah, that's that makes sense. That will always be. Um, I will change, but being me won't change. Right. Um, the other one I've kept was Sacred Mornings, which mm. was um, a realization that I, number one, I'm a, what's it called? A lark. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a morning person. I'm me too. up really early. Yeah. I love it. I want to go to bed at 830. I'm like in bed reading at 830 and I'm up at 530. Um, love it. So it was a recognition that like, not only that, but that my mornings were incredibly important and the way I structured them, you know, like so many people have said, led to the success or the experience I had in the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Um there was one that I had that was about uh, evolution, and it it wasn't that it's not valid anymore that I'm going to evolve, but it was really it was a focus on a really deep sense of evolution that I was having in a particular period of my life that I'm not having in the same way. So, you know, I can imagine like I think about maybe you and you were doing the happiness project and actually going through this process over 12 months you were probably having an evolutionary experience. A friend of mine calls them like quantum leap moments mm -hmm. where you're really going inward. You're really, you know, mm -hmm. transforming. Um, and then the pressure lets off. Mm -hmm. And so in the moment that I created that value or that important kind of that personal commandment, I was in that moment mm -hmm. and I realized now I'm not there. So mm -hmm. I don't need that same thing anymore as a guiding light. But that's really important, too, like that you reevaluate the personal commandments because they're meant to be sort of the framework for living your life. So if you've outgrown them or sort of moved through a moment, a season, um, right, you would want them to change. That's mm -hmm. so interesting. It could be really interesting to do like every five years, like compare them and see yeah. what what has stuck and then what has changed. Exactly. Fascinating. So if you were to write a book on happiness today, what would you do differently? I would have a much bigger emphasis on, you know, you may do it differently. I mean, I wrote the book through the lens of my own experience. I always write through the lens of my own experience. So in that way, I was true to that idea that, you know, this was like, I'm talking about myself so that you can think about yourself because sometimes it's hearing this, someone else's story is the thing that is the most helpful to us to think mm -hmm. about, well, what would I do differently or what, what could work for me? Like, that's very helpful. Um, but just understanding much more than I did then that uh, 
my responses were were so colored by my own nature, much more than I realized at the time. Mm, got it. And so you would it would be more about people being able to personalize, but it sounds like maybe the frame of what you're talking about would stay the same. Yes. And, and I think almost all of what I wrote would be the same because what I wrote about was what worked for me. But I think I would just understand kind of the way that I was talking about it. I would be I would be a little bit less confident. Um, it's funny because I have an aphorism project. I'm writing a book of aphorisms and aphorisms mm. are like sweeping statements about all of human nature. So I love writing sweeping statements about human nature. It's like my hobby. But you have to understand, like, what is the limitation of what you're saying? So, it, you know, um, I drop in a sometimes or most instead of mm. everybody. I'm not quite as confident about a lot of the things that I say, or I would just be very even more clear. Um about what works for me. So, you know, we're in beginning of 2022. Hopefully, I think most of us are in the hopeful state that this is the beginning of a new era for for all of us. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for people as, you know, we're talking about this concept of understanding self and of happiness, but also recognizing, um, you know, not maybe not everybody's even in that place yet. Well, the one thing I would say is that if you're going to focus any of your energy going forward, I would start with relationships because really that is the core thing. And so I, I think a lot of people's habits have been disrupted over this time. And so you may need to like feel your way back into previous habits. You may need to create new habits. Um, you may be at a different season of life now. And so certain things have to be built up that in, in ordinary times would have happened more uh, automatically. Um, I think for a lot of people, because the work life is going to be very different for many of us, that's going to require kind of an openness and a sense of experimentation to try to understand, like, well, what does it mean to engage with my coworkers when there's so much more working remote and we're not all just like hanging out in the office kitchen like three times a day or whatever? You know, we're going to have to really grope our way toward the future. But I think that thinking that relationships are are like at the front and center, um, re you know, reconnecting with people that maybe you haven't been able to visit for a couple of years, or you know maybe there are relationships that kind of went dormant, but really making the effort to like bring those back up as soon as you can, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. Relationships take time, they take energy, they take cooperation with somebody else, which sometimes totally. they're not that cooperative. You're hurting <laughs> the cats. Um, but I think that it is one of the things that people are the most excited about, you know, which is, you know, reconnecting, you know, the reunions, the weddings, the trips, the family gatherings, um, the neighborhood gatherings, like all these things. People are very, very excited um, to, to do it. And it's really a good use of our time and energy. Yeah. And I will add for people who are re-entering the world and re-socializing themselves, yeah. it truly can also be a process of like anxiety and excitement. You know, I, yes. I can, I remember going to a coffee shop with someone I didn't know well and going, wait, what do I say now? Yeah. How do I, how do I no, have a conversation? I think you're right. We have to give ourselves grace <laughs> yeah. to kind of edge our way back into it. I know. Well, it's funny too, because somebody I know was saying like, you kind of like with you doing work travel, because some people have started traveling for it. It's like, I forgot all like my tips and tricks and hacks and like all the little things because it's been so long. So we do have to kind of remember how to engage and, and all those things. And people are in different places. Some people are, are feeling very eager to get out there and other people want to take it slowly. So I do think we all have to like cut each other a lot of slack, mm -hmm. you know, and just show consideration uh, for each other and for ourselves as we as we head back. Yeah. 
prioritizing our relationships and yes. hopefully our relationships with ourselves too. Yes. Absolutely. So Gretchen, I'm going to have you complete these three answers for me. Better humans are? Deeply connected to other humans. Better work is? Work worth doing. And a better world has? Compassion and responsibility. Love it. Thank you so much for joining me, Gretchen. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it so much. We are interested in the same things. We could talk all day. That was Gretchen Rubin, author of many books, including The Happiness Project. Check out her podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And one big thing before we go. Most people have one desire in their life, in their relationships, and in their work, and it's to be happy. I'd even say it's really to be at peace. Where I've seen this road get hard is assuming what others do can be copy-pasted to create your own happiness, and assuming that happiness never changes form. If you can accept that you have your own unique way of finding lasting joy and contentment while also understanding you won't always feel good, it will change form and you will recreate, life gets more manageable. If today's show helped you on your journey, hop onto Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. And if the spirit moves you, write a quick review. It helps other listeners like you find this show and grow with our community. And of course, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and send me a message to let me know how this is resonating with you. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Michelle O'Brien with help from Victoria Taylor. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks so much for coming on the journey with me, and I'll see you next week.